Hello. Hey, Gaurav. Welcome. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Jorge. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you kicked off the room early? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, I've uh, committed a, <laughs> a major faux pas here. <laughs> nice job. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm never going to hear the end of this one. It's all good. We're eager. We're eager to chat today. Gaurav, you should, you should turn your camera off because we can all see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> I'm not a total Luddite, even though I asked my seven-year-old son how to use my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, well, it's only a matter of time for the kids to take over, but maybe that's that's for the best. I'm Vinny Tagawala, a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and with me tonight are my A16Z Bio GP colleagues, um, BJ Pandey and Jorge Conde. And today, our special guest is uh, my friend and colleague Gaurav Single, a physician and computer scientist who was most recently the chief data officer at the Cancer Genomics Company Foundation Medicine, uh, where I had an opportunity to work with him closely in my role at, at Flatiron Health. And at Foundation Medicine, um, Gaurav was in the very unique position of overseeing uh, the company's entire data platform, which linked clinical data, digital pathology images, and biobanked samples with one of the largest cancer genomics data sets in the world. And this platform then became a very exciting product engine, which drove more and more efficient R&D for both novel therapies as well as diagnostics and a whole um, clinical decision support platform. Prior to being at Foundation Medicine, Gaurav created a variety of NLP-based solutions for physicians practicing on the front lines at Mass General and the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he actually continues to see patients as a physician today, he's also on the faculty and a member of the board of advisors at Harvard Medical School, where he directs a course on health tech and innovation. So we're really, really fortunate to have him join us today uh, on Clubhouse for this session. And our goal today is to frame a discussion about the future of diagnostics, specifically digital diagnostics. Um, we'd like to bring as many of you into the conversation as we can. So today our goal is is to kick off a discussion for um, the first half hour and then leave, you know, 20, 30 minutes at the back half of the hour to bring up additional speakers um, from the group uh, and, and field any questions that we might collectively um, have for Gaurav uh, and our group up here. Just a quick note that this conversation is being recorded. So for those of you who are interested in coming up to chat by doing so, um, you are consenting to us using your words and your, your Clubhouse profile image in a future recording related to the event. Okay, so let's get started. And um, welcome, Gaurav. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Vinita. Sorry, this Clubhouse thing is new to me, as I think everybody has appreciated <laughs> by now. Uh, but uh, really, really excited to have this conversation with you and, uh, and the rest of the team here. You're doing great so far. So I wanted to propose um, a discussion on digital diagnostics in kind of three broad parts. One, a discussion of what are they? I think a lot of people have heard the phrase digital diagnostics or have heard about, you know, next generation AI enabled diagnostics, but aren't quite sure, you know, what goes into that category. So one, what are they? Two, who stands to benefit and how do incentives work in this ecosystem? And then three, you know, the ultimate question in healthcare, who pays for it? Who's going to pay for the adoption of digital diagnostics? So let's start with the first question, Gaurav. Um, what are they? What, 
how, how do you think about defining the space of digital diagnostics? Yeah, you know, this, um, this whole world, I think, is pretty fascinating, and, and I think is coming fast and furious. Um, I almost I almost hesitate to use the word digital because it's gotten blackmarked by so many other associations. But you know, my other my other framing for this concept is second order diagnostics, and what I mean by that is diagnostics that have been created on the backs of data that was already generated for some other reason. Um, so you know, foundation medicine, for example, we got tumor tissue, we sequenced it, we generated new data, and then we interpreted it. That's sort of what I would consider more of a classical diagnostic. Um, these second-order diagnostics are using data that's generated in healthcare all the time, like path image data. Uh, or EKG data or telemetry data or, you know, maybe more contemporarily wearables data um, and reinterpreting it and generating new insights for that. And, you know, what I think is fascinating is those insights can represent any number of different um, categories of value. It could be diagnostic, it could be predictive, it could be prognostic. Um, and uh, and there's a whole world of these emerging from basically every data type that you can imagine, radiology data, ICU data. Um, and, um, and so that's sort of when I talk about digital diagnostics or second order diagnostics, I mean, I'm using that as a as an umbrella term for basically all of those uh, classes of, of emerging diagnostics and insights. Yeah, and I'd echo that it's it's not easy to draw the boundaries between traditional diagnostics and let's say, uh, you know, a new wave that we all feel coming of, of a new generation of, of more data-driven diagnostics. At their core, diagnostic tests that we have today, even an imaging test, are very digital, right? The data that they produce has always been digital, has always been um, viewed using digital software, has always been interpreted, um, you know, with the support of software in a, in a lot of different contexts. And so the boundaries do become fuzzy. And so one way to think about it that, that I find um, helpful is to think about what the regulatory path would be for a proposed digital diagnostic. In some cases, a traditional so-called diagnostic like a laboratory developed test. Um, you know, a good example of this would be the liquid biopsy tests um, that Grail and Freenome and other companies are developing in which a lot of software and digital enablement has gone into the creation of the test, but ultimately it's regulated in a way that's very similar to other laboratory developed tests and, and goes down that regulatory pathway. Um, whereas there are other uh, digital diagnostics, which to Gaurav's point, may be much more in the, in the category of second order analytics that may let's say help a patient, help identify a patient who's eligible for a clinical trial also a diagnostic data point that's of high interest, but may not be regulated in the same way as let's say a traditional LDT or a commercial uh, laboratory test device would be. Um, so I'll add that as well, just to, just to muddle the ground, so to speak. Um, yeah, Vanita, I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the regulatory dimension of this, as you know, is still evolving um, as the FDA considers uh, a number of different dimensions that make these types of diagnostics unique. Um, I think the second thing I would say is, you know, your point about radiology being digital and, and even pathology becoming digital um, is really well taken, right? And and that blurs the lines to a large extent. Um, one way I've thought about this is there's some real practical uh, implications of reinterpreting data that you're not generating yourself. Um, for example, you don't have to be the lab, right? You don't have to process the tissue. Um, the marginal cost of running your diagnostic maybe dramatically less, right? Because the data already exists. You just need to somehow get access to it, reinterpret it, and then provide the result. 
Um, and frankly, in some ways, it concentrates the challenges on a different part of the equation as well, right? Because now you have to figure out um, not how do you get the sample, but rather how do you get the data that already exists somewhere? Um, and it creates, I think, a much broader ecosystem. And we can talk about this a little bit later about who are the players who can enable this. And it's not always just the provider and patient, which is where I would say the entire rest of the diagnostic industry has to interface. There's a whole bunch of entities like you know, um, information systems that live on top of that infrastructure that maybe cross institutional boundaries that now become players in this game. Because um, again, whoever houses the data now becomes the starting point potentially for, um, for the work to be done. Yeah, super interesting. It shifts, um, it shifts some of the inertia required. In some cases, it may make the inertia more. Like you said, you have to get access to large training data sets. In other cases, um, in other cases, that may be dramatically lower than developing a new experimental diagnostic test with an assay associated with it. Um, so, do you think we're entering a golden age for digital diagnostics? Like, is the sort of talk us through your view of of what's hype and what's real to use one of our podcast hosts on Chokshu's um, phrases. Like, there's a lot of discussion about how just so much of the diagnostic universe may move into an era, you know, into a into a modality that that looks more digital. Um, what part of that resonates most with you? So I certainly am a believer that we are entering a golden age. And I think the empirical evidence of that is just the, the sort of glut of companies and science and papers and discussion about this topic um, that really feels new in the last you know, couple of years-ish. Um, um, you know, why that's happening, I think one can point to a few different things. You mentioned data access, right? Um, for this to happen, one has to have enough um, data available, but also digitized and in the right format, et cetera, et cetera. You know, take EKGs as an example, right? Having an EKG on paper and scanned into a system, far less exciting for training than if you have the, the actual sort of digital time series. It's just sort of a practical example. Digital pathology, same thing. So just the data being generated in the right way and then being made available or, or sort of people pulling it together or people sort of being motivated to get access to it. Um, I think the second piece of that is that's being coupled with a number of technology advances that this group is quite familiar with in um, in the machine learning space, computational advances, algorithmic advances, et cetera, coupled now with large data sets that are relevant for training in the right format. Um, you know, all of that is leading to what I see as science for the first time showing real clinical relevance and capabilities of these diagnostics. Um, and we can definitely talk about that in, um, in more detail um, as the conversation progresses. You know, the piece that I think is um, is more emerging, and I know we'll talk about this as well, is um, is really the question of, okay, if the science is real and the science is now real because the data is available and the methods exist, you know, why aren't the diagnostics themselves more prevalent, right? We see a lot of companies, we see a lot of science, we see a lot of papers. Um, we're starting to see some of this in the R&D pipeline, but, but we still don't, you know, in the front lines, and I know you see patients and I see patients, it's not like we're seeing these uh, in clinical care all the time, um, it, it certainly feels like that part is not yet um, realized. And so, uh, you know, we're entering the golden age. We're not there yet. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing tests scanned into the EHR all the time. It's very digital. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard to fax a digital diagnostic, you know. <laughs> um, and so that does pose a really interesting question. I think let's try to debug it. Why, why what's the, what is it? Is it regulation? Is it data access? I'll nominate a couple. Um, 
reasons for which, you know, for why diagnostics haven't gone even more digital. I'd, I'll start with one that's maybe a little bit um, unusual for, for me to say sitting at a software investment investment firm, which is, you know, I think hardware actually is um, is a piece of this puzzle where, you know, sensor technology is improving a lot. There are a lot of companies that are now starting to bring really interesting home-based diagnostics, smartphone-based diagnostics, image-based diagnostics to market. But I do think that took some time to catch up um, in, in terms of data generation to data, you know, with the data analytic capacity. Um, and then I think the other is, uh, are the data sets are just really hard to generate that prove um, utility or even equivalency to current standard of care. Uh, in order to to garner you know regulatory approval and and more importantly the much higher bar, which is physician adoption, um, so maybe we can transition into a discussion about you know about the incentives um, and how you know different parties stand to benefit from a diagnostic landscape that becomes more digital, and it's not just patients. I think we all see the value of potentially more remote-based or more continuously updated diagnostics for patients. That might actually be the clearest value prop. But what about some of the other industries surrounding um, diagnostics? So why don't we start with um, the pharma industry, as an example, Gaurav, where you've got a lot of experience um, partnering closely from the vantage point of a diagnostics company. What, what does pharma stand to benefit? from a digital diagnostic universe. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're bringing up pharma, Vinita, because I, you know, often we certainly start with the provider-patient healthcare system where we know, you know, from, from decades of experience that, you know, innovation has, a, has an adoption cycle that's on the order of a decade or more, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of them are, are good reasons, right? That medicine needs to be conservative and, and really sort of uh, prove things out before they become part of the mainstream. Um, but some of them are are just sort of the incentive structure on on the clinical side that you know even once guidelines are in place and the educational model and and continuing medical education and systems and infrastructure I mean there's a million reasons why that's um, why that's slow right to adopt um, to your point about pharma I think this is what's so fascinating about this um, this emerging industry and you know you'd commented a few minutes ago about wearables and quality of data being generated and so on with which I completely agree. Um, some of these second-order diagnostics, though, are looking at technologies that really do generate high-quality, high-resolution, good data and have been forever, right? And just take, you know, as a simple example, EKGs and digital pathology images, right? Uh, you know, digital pathology is certainly incredibly high-resolution um, with, with a ton of different applications in terms of what it could yield. And maybe if we just think about a few of those categories and think about, you know, why would pharma care, Right. So the first is diagnosis, right? Um, and actually, maybe EKGs are a better example of this. There are a number of cardiovascular conditions, you know, amyloidosis and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy being two examples that are incredibly rare conditions, um, but even rarer in terms of their diagnosis. Um, these are conditions for which therapies are now for the first time emerging. Um, and there are pharmaceutical companies that have made those medicines that stand to benefit tremendously if those medicines got in the hands of all of the people who could benefit. The challenge for them, of course, is that the, the many people don't even know they have these diseases and therefore don't know that they could benefit from, uh, from these new medicines. Now, if, if it were possible, which now science is suggesting it, it truly is, to identify 
individuals who likely have these conditions with some you know, reasonable to very good degree of accuracy um, from EKGs, for example, that almost every sort of you know, la- later age adult gets, um, you could then identify a whole host of folks who harbor these conditions, don't know they have them, and could get treated early to, to benefit of them, to providers, to institutions, to, um, to payers to some extent, w- which we can talk about. But for pharma, the opportunity is clearest, right? I mean, you take hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a condition that probably one in five people who have it know they have. And you think about the commercial implications for anybody developing a drug in that space of finding the other 80% of patients. Um, so you know, that's one example where if you could find um, latent disease, if you could diagnose latent disease using these second-order diagnostics from data that's already broadly generated, think about the impact that could have on the pharma side. The tragedy, of course, is that if we just follow the, the natural history of this from a clinical adoption cycle, right, you've got scientific validation of the algorithms, which has basically been done, a demonstration of their clinical relevance, which is almost done, growing through the regulatory pathway, then convincing payers to pay for it, then convincing, um, then convincing you know, providers and institutions to adopt this, and then finally, um, and then finally bringing this um, to the to the end user, and then hopefully driving sufficient adoption um, that the pharma company benefits. So I, I guess the net of all of this, from my perspective, is this is one example, but you could make a, sim- a similar case for prognostic biomarkers or predictive biomarkers, or just you know digital diagnostics that better evaluate things that we already look at today. Pharma has so much value here um, that won't be realized until these things are adopted, that in my opinion, Pharma should, frankly, just subsidize this entire industry, um, and one could run the numbers and do the math. But with eighty percent of you know a population in just one condition um, sitting waiting to benefit from your medicine, um, if if you could drive that industry, it seems to me that you know you should take the gloves off and do that. All right. Well, we promised a debate, so I'm going to take the opposite side of this debate um, and argue that. Gosh, no, we don't want the biopharma industry as as gatekeepers for the entire diagnostics industry because it drives a unilateral adoption of diagnostic with a single purpose, which is to you know get to drugs, which might be the right answer for some set of patients, but might be exactly the wrong answer for another set of patients, or might prevent you know the commercialization of diagnostics that have really great utility in de-escalating therapy or in stopping patients. From um, you know, from being offered therapies from which they won't benefit, and so uh, I'll take the side that we should continue, you know, to to leverage our traditional payer systems and uh, a regulatory framework for diagnostics that might combine, you know, review by both the FDA as well as by you know a CMS and other payers to determine whether or not a test is sound and whether or not it's you know its benefit uh, is justifiable, you know, against its cost. Um, and I think payers have a huge amount to gain by, you know, from, from digital diagnostics and much the way that you described the incentives for pharma companies. Payers stand to identify patients, you know, ad- accurate diagnos- di- diagnoses earlier. Um, treating most diseases earlier reduces long-term cost of care, not always, but, but often does. Identifying patients who won't um, benefit, for example, from a therapy. Lots of interesting companies are doing this now for checkpoint inhibitors in the oncology space. Um, Companies are even, uh, to your point about second-order diagnostics, developing 
entirely radiomic signatures that based on the appearance of a tumor on a CT scan, can you learn enough about the features of that tumor and its microenvironment to predict that maybe this patient is going to be one of the 80% of patients who don't respond to a checkpoint inhibitor? So the exact sort of opposite 80-20 that you described, Gaurav, might play out in such a way that makes the payer a much more incented party to bring, you know, to bring this diagnostic to market to avoid spend on a checkpoint inhibitor that will only cause side effects and no benefit. How, how about this as an intermediate ground, which is that, uh, <laughs> how that for, uh, yeah, for, for the cases where the diagnostic looks like a companion diagnostic looks like biology, even if it's engineered biology, but it's, it's requires more wet lab side. Uh, that's probably more pharma than payers, right? I don't see payers sort of pushing in there. Uh, but if to the extent that this diagnostic looks like real world evidence, you know, looks more like the analytics that payers are doing anyways for deciding reimbursement, just going a little further uh, and thinking about uh, that. Well, that sounds very payer friendly and actually doesn't does not sound like pharma. So maybe the argument is that if it's really much more on this digital analytics side, maybe that does stay with payers. Yeah, well, so look, I um, I know we're supposed to debate. I mean, frankly, I agree with both of you, so I don't know if that's cheating or not. But um, <laughs> but um, but let me let me let me sort of for the purpose of discussion, sort of play counterpoint here. Um, again, I agree that payers actually do stand to benefit, and eventually that benefit will sort of come to light, and people will sort of get on the train and so on. Um, I just think it's a long time between now and then, and part of what I you know what I see is somebody's got to kick this flywheel, right? And the question is, which side do you kick it on to get it moving? Um, and you know, let me give you an example, right? There are clinical development strategies that one might adopt, for example, for, you know, prognostic enrichment of clinical studies, right? So find patients who are at highest, highest risk, um, and, you know, include them in your, your first study in order to demonstrate, you know, most efficiently the benefit of your medicine, and then sort of move on to all comers. Um, that strategy has huge commercial risk for the development, for, for the pharma company that takes that on if that diagnostic is not already broadly in use, right? So imagine you've got some digital diagnostic that says this is a subset of patients who are at highest risk you know, for, for events. And if you enroll only this population in your study, you could do your study in you know, an order or two orders of magnitude less cost and time. Um, but once you get to market, if that ends up part of your label, right, then you know, nobody can get your medicine, not even that subset because nobody's getting the test. So for, for these benefits to be realized, my view is that you kickstart the flywheel by getting the diagnostic broadly adopted, right? And so then the question becomes, who is more likely? Is it pharma or is it payer to kickstart the wheel in sort of a um, risk-aware way, right? To say, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. We're going to take a bet that this is ultimately going to sort of uh, create value for the whole ecosystem and for, selfishly for us, right? But for us to do that, we have to subsidize it by driving adoption, Right. And I guess that's what I am suggesting um, that the pharma industry can and should do here. And by the way, Vinita, to your point, I have seen the other side of this too, right? Which is that I don't think pharma should control in any meaningful way the emergence of diagnostics and ultimately sort of how precision medicine evolves, because that's going to lead to one that is ultimately, you know, pharma friendly in a, in a way that there needs to be a counterbalance, right? That is is maybe more cost conscious. Um but the, the nice thing about digital diagnostics is once you get the first, let's say, EKG machine learning plat, you know, diagnostic out there, or you get the first digital pathology you know, analytics out there, you've now basically created the foundational layer on which the marginal cost to add your next one is much less, right? 
So maybe as a bridge between our, our two perspectives here, I think that pharma should kickstart this whole process, basically motivate financially the creation of this foundational infrastructure, on top of which maybe the first couple of use cases are particularly pharma-friendly um, and generate real value for pharma that just sort of allows them to recoup that investment. And on top of that platform, payers hopefully will have gotten on the bandwagon by then and can now drive the next set of diagnostics that then come to market on top of that same platform that follow the traditional pathway that you just articulated. Very nuanced and interesting. We can be friends again. Um, so what, <laughs> let, me, let, me play back, let me play back what I'm hearing. In a sense, you're describing different categories of costs required to bring a novel diagnostic to market. Some of these cost categories apply, you know, equivalently to traditional diagnostics as well, like the liquid biopsy example I shared, and some may be unique to, you know, so a second order or, or, or purely digital diagnostic. But the categories that we're talking about are development costs. How do you build the core algorithm or the core piece of software that provides the diagnostic information? Number one, there are distribution costs. How do you then undertake the right campaign to generate awareness of your test, to generate adoption of your test, to generate evidence for your test clinically. And then the final is actually the reimbursement cost. How do you, how do you continue to sustain that engine commercially by compensating the company creating the test you know, on a, on a marginal cost basis, right? Every time somebody runs the test, who, where, does the, where does the value flow for each um, each turn of the crank, so to speak, on the test. So there are development costs, you know, distribution costs, and reimbursement costs. And you're arguing, if I'm understanding correctly, Gaurav, um, which is a really interesting position, that pharma should get much more involved in development costs because of all of the numerous benefits that will flow downstream in terms of identifying patients for trials, in terms of identifying patient populations for their drugs downstream, even if they can't control all the downstream value generated later, you know, for every marginal use of, of, of the diagnostic test. Yeah, I think that's a great framing, Vinita. And, you know, maybe let's talk about the development piece that you've brought up. You know, on the one hand, there's development of a particular diagnostic, right? And there you've got you know, data collection, you've got training, validation, taking it through, you know, regulatory pathways, et cetera. Um, you know, that sort of, you know, what you might consider development in the single instance, right, of a, of a single analytic insight or diagnostic or however you package it. You could also argue there's a development piece that's sort of platform-wide, right? And um, and this is one where I definitely don't have the answer on who does this, right? But but take as an example, just EKG ML or again, digital pathology ML, um, you need to have an infrastructure that, for example, um, makes available the digitized ECGs or makes available the digitized pathology images for analysis, right? And then once those once those raw data are available, then one can run, let's say, one algorithm that has been developed and turned into a diagnostic, let's say, for the detection of you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or for the detection of cardiac amyloidosis, right? Uh, cardiac amyloidosis or for the detection of some, you know, malignant arrhythmia, right? These are all things that can be built on top of that. But, um, but I think the development cost of the platform and subsidizing that platform build seems like a no brainer for pharma to do. And then the development costs, I would say of at least the first few um, pharma friendly, let's call them, um, diagnostics that live on top of that, those are probably hand in hand 
I think those are no brainers for pharma to, to subsidize. Um, and then so companion point, diagnostics might be your companion diagnostics might be your initial applications, but then you brought in beyond that. And for those in the room who aren't familiar with the term, a companion diagnostic is a diagnostic that specifically, you know, is a gate to a patient accessing a certain therapy, uh, such as an EGFR mutation test as a companion diagnostic for a TKI that targets, um, you know, EGFR in a patient with lung cancer, for example. And so maybe that's the starting point for a platform, but then it goes on to produce diagnostics, which may not be tethered at all to specific therapies in the future. Yeah. You know, I think so companion diagnostics, it almost gives me a little bit of PTSD, right? Because that, you know, are we really shortening anything if we go down the companion diagnostic route? But, um, because that's a long process, right? Then you're sort of Fair enough, in some ways, the, right? Yeah, you have to go with the with the therapeutic trial. You go with yeah. the drug, exactly, exactly. But what about things that are lighter than that, right? Like, hey, I think you have this disease. Go get screened with a definitive test, right? I mean, if I were a pharma company, I would want that everywhere. The the hard part, Vinita, is let's say I'm let's say I've even agreed to this, right? Let's say we all agree, we hold hands and we say, yep, pharma should subsidize this, right? It's still not obvious how, right? I mean, one path is you know you you just vertically integrate them, right? And you sort of take the independent sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, marginal profit of of one test sort of motives of a of an individual diagnostic company off the table, and you say, look, we're, we're going to acquire you. We're going to make you part of the larger enterprise. The value is being generated uh, in spades on the therapeutic side, and we'll just find some internal sort of, you know, um, accounting for that. Um, you know, you diagnostic now subsidiary you know, go do your thing and just become ubiquitous, right? And in some ways, you know, we've seen that story play out. I've seen that story play out personally, at least in, in some cases, right, um, with the Roshan Foundation Medicine. Um, the flip side of that, and we've seen people try this on the other side, is for diagnostic companies to say, hey, you know, I, I'm generating a ton of value on the therapeutic side. I should get a cut of that, right? And you see, you know, the, the most obvious example here is 23andMe saying, look, we are doing all of this incredible sort of testing at huge scale, and there's you know drug discovery applications here, which is a little bit different from what we're talking about. Um, but but you can imagine pull through to clinical development as well um, and build a drug development a drug discovery drug development arm. Um, I don't know that we've seen you know blowout winners in either of these two vertical integration examples. And of course, there's many others, right? But I think you know frankly, jury is still out. Um, a question I have, and maybe this is a good question for later in the discussion, if if folks in the audience have a have a view on this. Um, but is there a puzzle piece missing from this whole ecosystem? Is there some bridge that needs to exist um, that doesn't yet exist in the marketplace that connects the dots between the diagnostic companies that, that have the potential to generate huge value for pharma, pharma companies that historically have not found the right contracting method to, sh- to equitably share that value with the diagnostic company? Actually, I believe that's the root of all of this, is there's not an equitable distribution of the value that's created um, from these digital diagnostics or could be created. And it's not just an equity and fairness issue. I think there's an opportunity cost um, that's emerging. And if we could crack that nut, I think the whole industry would accelerate and, and frankly, the world would benefit. Can you imagine that's, a full stack pharma payer? You know, that's the crazy combination uh, because that's how you see the value, right? You gotta be on both sides. Yeah, yeah totally. Or, or maybe halfway there would be value-based pricing for pharma assets and a value-based ecosystem in which, you know, in which all parties, you know, are, are we undertake the difficult task of attributing um, cost savings <clears throat> to each of the parties in the chain. 
But I think in some sense, what you're describing is a well-functioning value-based care system, which recognizes that a preventative diagnostic that identifies disease earlier saves the healthcare system money overall, identifies the patient's candidacy for a drug that also might save you know, the system money downstream and so on and so forth. So I actually think we have a couple, I can see multiple digital health founders in the audience too. And I think, you know, just to, to leave everybody with, with one more thought and then let's, let's transition over to, to, to Q&A. But, you know, I think there is going to be room because of this growing value-based ecosystem for a proliferation of digital diagnostics that don't require pharma in the loop. I'm very compelled by the argument that you describe where pharma is extremely incented to, you know, to, to fund development of lots of interesting platforms that then accrue value for them in, in the context of trials and other, and other cases. But I think because the world outside pharma is also very rapidly evolving towards truly value-based reimbursement regimes, and because providers are finally you know, generating truly digital care delivery assets, data assets, I think the opportunity for partnership between that genre of providers and payers to understand the utility of diagnostics much more rapidly is potentially unprecedented. And combined with, you know, an FDA that seems motivated to develop novel regulatory pathways for, you know, to regulate medical software as a device, to consider adaptive software that's not so-called, you know, locked algorithms that might evolve and change over time. And, and you know, just a, a general willingness to engage the community on, on regulating and, um, you know, and supporting the commercialization of diagnostics in that ecosystem. I do think in a way that before felt much more reliant on pharma, we'll start to see a little bit of decoupling as well. Maybe both trends will accelerate at the same time. Yeah, Manita, I think that's a really good point, and we should open it up for discussion. Maybe um, let me just make it slightly less easy for our audience, which is what about the scenarios in which it isn't cost-saving, right? I mean, of course, it's ideal if pharma benefits and payers benefit, but what if not, right? What if it actually drives increased utilization? People live longer, right? And if people live longer, maybe it costs the, the insurers more money, right? What then? Um, I think is an important question to ask. Um and, and another question I'll put out there, you use the word attribution. I think this is actually a key part of maybe the challenge that's emerging. If you're one of the folks in the um, in the sort of sequence of events that leads a patient to ultimately access a medicine, right? And you want to partner with the therapeutics company um, and say, look, if I weren't part of this chain, right, this medicine would not have been sold, right? And therefore, I deserve, uh, I deserve some share, right? This is the equitable distribution. Um, Maybe there's an attribution problem to solve also, right? Which is, you know, how do you how do you sort of really know that you contributed to that event? So uh, two, maybe two other um, questions or mm -hmm. comments um, to stimulate discussion um, in the back half of this, in the back half of this. Yeah, great point. Great point. It's not as simple as cost saving. Um, well, so if anybody would like to come up and join us, please uh uh, raise your hand on the, there's a little hand icon at the bottom of the clubhouse um, room. We'd love to to invite you up to hear your thoughts and um, field questions. And in the meantime, we'll continue, you know, discussion on this topic. I wanted to flag um, one example, uh, Gaurav, to your point about tests that might actually increase cost of care and give a shout out to our friends at a company called viz.ai. Many of you may have heard of 
of this software to um, identify rapidly patients with stroke from their CT scan imaging who might be eligible for an invasive procedure, um, such as a thrombectomy. And so in the near term, many of these patients may otherwise have had catastrophic strokes and they might have died. Um, and so, you know, morbidly, the cost of care for that patient um, might have been less without the diagnostic, but in the near term, the cost of care, um, you know, saved a li- saved a life. But the the way that they have figured out a very creative approach to you know to incenting providers to adopt the system is that you know the providers get credit from the payers who recognize that medical evidence to perform you know this scan is worth it and justifies a life saving procedure, and so therefore reimburse providers in an attractive way for for jumping in to perform that life saving procedure and because they've coupled the digital diagnostic to a revenue generating procedure code, that's been a very, very interesting go-to-market approach um, of which there aren't very many that we can point to. So it's a good example, um, I think, of a diagnostic that that required that framework to be supported because of exactly what you said, Gaurav. Totally. And, And really hit the sweet spot, right? I mean, they, in some ways, if we could replicate that, that would be awesome. I'm curious, Gaurav, um, if you've seen particularly interesting uh, frameworks for analysis and regulation of an adaptive algorithm. Like, let's talk about that for a second, because it's such, it's one of the things that really do differentiate a digital diagnostic platform from traditional diagnostics, which are deterministic, or at least they're supposed to be deterministic, and, and in fact, their regulation requires that they demonstrate that they produce, you know, deterministically reproducible results when the exact same data goes in, the same data comes out. And that's yeah. kind of the, the traditional framework, right, for a diagnostic. But now you have a system that might be constantly learning every time a new EKG is added to its training data set. How do you, what do you think the infrastructure is that will need to, to evaluate that and make sure yeah. it's safe? Yeah, I think this is like a nightmare scenario, Vinita, as exciting as it is sort of computationally. <laughs> um, VJ may have different uh, different viewpoints since he's more of an optimist than I am. I mean, in some ways, this is like the second order problem of the second order diagnostics, right? I mean, it feels like there's, if you look at some of the algorithms that have been published, they're not rocket science, right? I mean, it's like imaging analysis that's like summed up or, you know, or, or sort of averaged out or, you know, it, again, sort of, it's not, in some ways, the algorithms today are not rocket science. It's the sort of, um, adoption cycle that we talked about, that's the real problem. What you're talking about, I think, is really exciting, right? Which is that these algorithms could get better and better and could learn and could evolve. And, you know, the um, obviously the FDA guidance on this is not final yet, but the software as a medical device guidance is quite progressive, in my opinion, and um, certainly shows a willingness to, you know, regulate on methods of update rather than on, you know, like you said, um, you know, stereotypically and reproducibly producing the same results given given sort of a certain set of inputs. Um, I think it's great that they're being so progressive. Uh, it still seems dangerous to me, to be totally honest with you. I mean, we've seen, you know, medicine not work in ways that we want it to. So uh, we could talk a lot more about that. Vijay, I'd love to hear yeah, your thoughts. Well, yeah, does it, I don't know if it has to be all that complicated, right? Because, uh, you know, the worst case scenario from a regulatory burden is that you version these things you test the first version, you wait until it's sufficiently improved on a retrospective test that you want to do a prospective test, and then you test the next version, and you just roll. 
and so I mean that's the worst case scenario, right? And and that's there's a lot of overhead there because it treats each test as if it was a new test. But um, the, and so the question is, just can we do better than that? Uh, and uh, I'm not sure at first we need to do better than that. I'm not too w upset about the regulatory burden. It takes time and it takes money. But in these early days of proving out AI, I'm fine with that. Uh, and I, I think there is, you know, a lot of challenges of a test that can uh, just automatically uh, do better and how it could fail spectacularly. So I'd be happy in these early days to be conservative, you know, even being an optimist, especially given the nature of this. I mean, yeah, uh, I does, totally does agree that work with you. for you? Does that work yeah, for you? completely. I mean, the versioning makes so much sense, right? And um, it seems like a nice bridge between the two. And there's a bunch of companies that have done this already, right? In um, even Foundation Medicine, right? In releasing multiple versions of their test. Um, and, and I think you're right, right? I mean, there's so many other problems to solve before we get fancy about the sort of online updating of the algorithm. Let's solve those first, right? Okay, to be conservative on this one. And then we can sort of get to the, the sort of sexy adaptive stuff um, as time goes. Is, is sort of yeah, and I, I think that's, that's I think uh, I'd love to solve for that when there's a, such a serious issue that, uh, but for allowing this, you know, lives are at stake. I don't know if that's really true yet, that versioning wouldn't be able to address for now. So I, I think it, it is something where I'm, I'm really grateful that the FDA is thinking about this and putting down the plans for the future. But I think this sounds like a future problem, not as more than a now problem. Yeah, Just to play devil's advocate, a lot of clinical decisions today, the status quo is basically a poor man's adaptive algorithm. As an individual clinician gets a little smarter, <laughs> sees, an, sees another case, yeah. you know, had an experience so, so, last so, week. So, Benita, you're saying we should get rid of the clinicians then altogether? No, 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 no. What I'm saying... <laughs> Physicians are a poor man's lot of thing, Benita. Um, I'm saying hey, there's, I just, a uh, there's a sort of exceptionalism applied to sometimes computational diagnostics or even advanced genetic diagnostics that assumes they need to be way, way better and more controlled than the status quo, um, when in fact the status quo is incredibly messy. It's like, it's like the driverless cars. Driverless cars cannot crash. Exactly what I was thinking, Jorge. Um, the bar is much higher if you're not human, you know? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much to all the folks who came up to ask questions, and especially uh, to Gaurav for joining us tonight. Yeah, this was awesome. I, uh, I did Clubhouse sort of wrong at the beginning, but it turned out okay in the end. So thank you all uh, for the great discussion. <laughs> thank you, Gaurav. Take care and good night.